Please have a seat. Good morning, Christ Church. We are in a difficult position this morning. Today is Advent 4. There are four Sundays in Advent, Advent 1, 2, 3, 4. And today is also December 24th, as I'm sure you're aware. And this, once every seven years, the forces of the calendar align to make these things happen on the same day, where it feels like Christmas should already be here, but here we are still in Advent, still wearing the purple, still uh, looking up here. Trees aren't lit, and yet the poinsettias are here, and so we're left with a little bit of a juxtaposition that maybe even on the way into the church this morning, you were singing Christmas carols in the car. You're ready. You're in your heart wanting to say Christmas is here. And I want to say to you this morning and for this sermon, not yet, (laughs) just a little bit longer. If you would, for just a little bit longer, let's remain in this posture of waiting for the king to come longing for the king to come, longing for our king who came once, suddenly, born of the Virgin Mary in a way none of us would have expected. And we are praying and we are longing. He will come again to make all things right. Let's lean into that waiting, that posture of waiting for just a little bit longer if we can today. And to that end, I'm actually going to preach down here tonight. If you come back to the services this evening, we'll be preaching up here on the stage. Uh, But for right now, uh, just as we normally do, um, I'm going to preach from from this posture. And um, it's appropriate that we stay in Advent because today's sermon, it's a very Adventy sermon. And if you were expecting a Christmas sermon this morning, you would be sorely disappointed. So you're getting an Advent sermon, which is waiting for the King to come. We're going through Matthew's gospel. And for the past couple of weeks, uh, we have been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And we come today to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. You just heard Father Herb um, reciting these words, kind of the conclusion of the sermon itself. I had a, a preacher in seminary named Ellsworth Callis. And he was every bit the man of the name. You know, you, you need to be a character in order to fit that name. And he had a, a way of teaching us and just said, uh, at the end of every sermon, the preacher needs a dotted line for someone to sign on. That you need, your, our hearts need ways of saying, I now believe this, or I now trust this, I now do something in response to the sermon. And Jesus uh, Like every other preacher, in fact, Jesus, the greatest preacher, is giving us a dotted line, something to do, something to follow, something to obey here at the end of his sermon. He concludes the Sermon on the Mount in a really uh, beautiful way, and we're going to talk about it. But as I was this week, one of the things that I do as part of preparation is try to live in the sermon itself or live in the, the text itself. And I found myself being reminded of this story I've heard before that I want to recount to y'all. It's a story of a boy, young boy, who, as a small child, he has a vision where he sees this very brief but very real glimpse of joy. He sees a vision of joy. The joy is embodied as this faraway island, and he kind of awakens from the vision, sensing whatever else is real in life, I'm after that. I want to find the joy attached to that island. I, that's, that's where I'm going. And so he begins as a young boy growing up, searching, asking his parents, asking others. Eventually, as he grows older, journeying from city to city on this search. Does anyone know the way to that island of joy that I saw? He goes to different cities. He meets 
different friends, some journey with him for a period of time, thinking maybe they can help him find the island. Others hear about his quest and make fun of him. Others deceive him with cheap imitations of joy and the vision of the island, but the joy they offered never lasted. None of his friends actually were able to guide him or go with him to this path to the island of joy. In fact, as the boy became a man, he even talked to people who tried to persuade him he never saw the island. He never experienced the joy. It was just a figment of his imagination, and he tried that on. He adopted that posture. But as he did, he knew he was deceiving himself. The vision he had had been real. There really is this island of joy. He couldn't go that way much longer. He knew he'd be lying to himself. After years of journeying and stopping and starting the quest multiple times, one day he met an elderly woman. And he described this quest for this island of joy that he had been on. And the elderly woman said to him these words, I know the way. I know the way to this island of joy that you're seeking. And as she spoke, the man sensed the ring of truth. You know, when you talk to someone and you just, you can tell they're speaking the truth, he could sense what she's telling to me right now is actually true. This woman does know the way. Here's what he had spent his lifetime looking for, what he had been diverted from finding. And she was giving him a glimpse, not the whole thing, but she was painting a picture. There really is the island that you have been looking for. And I really do know the way. He asked her, tell me, show me the way to the island of joy. So the woman led him up a mountain cliff to the edge of a great ravine. And she said, on the other side of this ravine lies the journey to the island of joy. And the man said, well, how, how do I get across? And she said, you can't go over it. The only way is to go under it. And the man looked down and beneath him, deep in the canyon, was a flowing river. And she said, it takes a headlong jump and a dive, swimming all the way to the bottom of this water. There's a tunnel. You'll come up on the other side. You'll be set on this journey, on this path. The man, of course, at this moment, looking down, seeing the waters churning, seeing the rocks themselves, seeing the great height, wondered if he could do this. He thought back over the course of his life and decided all the moments of his life had been coming to this present moment. Would he jump? Would he trust? Would he dive in? He thought about it, and before he knew it, even while he was still thinking about it, he found himself doing it. He had jumped. He had leapt. He was in the air. He was flying. He was falling headfirst very quickly towards this water, and the man made a great dive and a great splash into the water, sinking down deep to the bottom. As he came to the bottom, his lungs started to burn, gasping for air. He thought he was going to die, and just in that moment, he found the tunnel and came up to the other side. As he passed back through the waters up onto the ground again and opened his eyes, he saw for the first time there in the distance the island, the joy that he had been looking for. This began another long journey, now always walking with his gaze pointed towards the island of joy. He often came on this second part of the journey to many other mountain ravines with many other deep rivers. <clears throat> and as he came to them, the way across was always the same. He had a choice to make. Either he could pause and sit at that moment, or he could jump again, throwing himself headlong into the deep waters, coming up on the other side a little bit closer to the island of joy. This journey continued many years this way until as an old man, 
He finally crossed a final mountain ravine that brought him to the island he had always sought and the joy that he had always longed for. A little story, that parable, comes from a book called The Pilgrim's Regress. Maybe you've heard The Pilgrim's Progress. This is The Pilgrim's Regress. The journey towards God we're all on. We're all searching for God. We've all had glimpses of joy. We all take different journeys to come to him through different cities, hearing different philosophies, talking to different people. But as we hear the good news from the elderly woman, the church, believing this is the way to go, we surrender, we submit, we find ourselves submitting to baptism, which feels like a death of the old person. But as we come up from the baptismal waters with our gaze pointed towards God, towards heaven, beginning the journey, here's the interesting thing about the story, and this is why it connects to our, our gospel text today. It's because maybe like me, you thought, once I've believed in God, once I've been baptized, that's it. I'm always walking towards him. But you continue in life to come to these mountain ravines where you find yourself saying, God, I thought I had trusted you with that thing in my life. I thought I had already come to the point of decision. God, I thought the old me was totally washed away. But here I am right now being invited to choose to follow you again. I've come to another crisis point in my life where I can either sit and stop or to go on means almost what will feel like a death of me all over again. It's not just a one-time event. Jesus has just finished preaching the most important sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he has told his followers, if you want to follow me, this is how you do it. This is what it looks like to forgive your enemies. This is what it looks like to treat other people with kindness. This is what it looks like to practice this life of prayer in secret where you don't care if other people are noticing you. This is what it looks like to give away your anxiety because of your trust in me so much. And he comes to the end of the sermon, and here is the dotted line that he offers to his disciples that day and to each of us today. Will you then follow me? Will you trust me? At whatever choice you're in front of, at whatever mountain you stand on, gazing out, will you jump and surrender to me? That's how he concludes his sermon today. And I want to point out a couple of things that we might notice as he's concluding this way. First, if you've got your Bible open up to Matthew 7 or look at your, your scripture sheet there, uh, notice he piles on these strong, contrasting images to conclude his sermon. Like a great preacher, Jesus just begins cascading the images to help land in the hearts of his hearers. He wants us to hear this. He says in verse 13, look, there are two roads going out, but you can only take one of them. Verse 15, there are two types of leaders, but only follow those who bear good fruit. Verse 21, there will be two types of people, those who follow my, will, my father's will and those who think they were following my father's will, even though they weren't. Verse 24, ultimately, there are two ways of living. You can build your life however you want, or you can build your life on me and see which one survives. Will you jump? Will you follow? Will you trust me? This is a major turning point in the sermon. Jesus doesn't give us any more ethics he doesn't say you need to know more about me or more ways of following me. He just says at this point, will you follow me? Choose to follow me. Second, notice Jesus is giving both an invitation and a challenge. If you're like me, you love the invitations of Jesus. We love the gentleness of Jesus. I love the start of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Right? But he also gives not just invitation but challenge. Leave your nets behind. 
follow me. Take up your cross, follow me. And here at the end of the sermon, he puts invitation and challenge together in our lives. We hear Jesus saying things like this in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't that seem too strict? Doesn't that seem like that's not the Jesus we're accustomed to hearing from? A Jesus who says, you won't enter my kingdom. Even though you called me Lord, you don't enter my kingdom. We're often in danger. This is a human danger that we all face. We want to paint Jesus in our image. We want to make him look like us. We want to make him bow to us. We want to make him bend to our wishes, our desires, our inclinations. And Jesus says, none of it. You will bow to me. I don't bow to you. I'm not surrendering myself to your position. Rather, you surrender yourself to me. It's the only way to find freedom. It's the only way to find life. It's the only path to the city of joy that I was talking about. We think of his challenges and we want to go back to his gentleness, but we forget that his challenges always come from his love. Always. Always from his love. He's a surgeon who cuts our skin to heal our wayward hearts. He's the doctor, the physician who breaks our bones of disobedience so that he can reset us. So we notice here in this passage, there's an invitation. Will you follow me in a challenge to leave behind our old way of doing things? Following the Sermon on the Mount, as you already know, might expect, will put you at odds with how you often think you're supposed to live in the world. It'll feel like you're just constantly going against the crowd. And still he says, follow me, though difficult, though the way is hard, the way is challenging. Follow me. Then we notice this third point about this. How can he challenge us in such a way? Who is he to challenge us to live this sort of way? Well, notice the identity of this preacher. And I said a couple of weeks ago as we began the Sermon on the Mount, you can never separate the Sermon on the Mount from the preacher on the Mount. If you're going to follow the Sermon on the Mount, it's only because you worship the preacher on the mount. His identity matters. So look what he says again in verse 21 and 22. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do your will? They keep saying this word, Lord. And do you know what the word, the Greek word for Lord is? You might know this. It's the word kurie. You've heard the song, kurie eleison, Lord have mercy, kurie, Lord. This word curie, like all words, has an interesting history. If we lived 2,000 years ago, around the first century AD, we heard this word curie. There are two people that this word curie gets attached to. The first you might know is um, if you lived in this time, you could say this about the emperor. You could say Kaiser curie, which means Caesar is Lord. So you could take this word curie and put it with Caesar, with the emperor. Or if you were Jewish, you knew this is an important word too. Because when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated in about the second century BC, 200 years before Jesus was born, there's this special name of God, Yahweh, is how we often say it. And the Jews were so reverent towards this name, they didn't even translate it in their scriptures. They used substitute words for it just to kind of have reverence to say this is a, a special and protected name. And when the Jews began translating their scriptures to the Greek, do you know the, the word that they used to translate the personal name of God? Curie, same word. So you could take this word that Jesus is describing here and you could apply it to the emperor 
Or you could apply it to God himself. And Jesus is here saying, on what basis do I command you? On what basis do I invite you to follow me? It is on the basis that I am curie, your emperor, your king. It is on the basis that I am curie, God himself, in your presence. The invitation, the challenge to obey comes from the identity of Jesus. You can't separate the Sermon on the Mount from the preacher on the Mount. And if you try to follow the Sermon on the Mount, try to do good works without a relationship with the preacher on the Mount, you will find yourself constantly failing, feeling very distressed. So I want us to look at a few of the images that Jesus uses as he closes the sermon. First of all, he says there are two ways, verse 13 through 14. He says, enter through the narrow gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many will enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Jesus begins his conclusion with naming there really are only two ways to follow him. He says, the gate is roomy. (laughs) The gate is wide open for any who want to go down it towards the way of destruction. But the small gate or the the tight-fitting gate. Have you ever put on a, a jacket that just feels a little too snug? You know, it's a, it's a tight-fitting jacket. Only a few find it. If you were to uh, go today to Jerusalem and walk around the old city, the old walled city, you would still see massively large gates where parades could go through. You can drive cars through there. I mean, you can, you can get some big machinery through there. There are big gates. You know what you don't do when you're walking around? You don't miss those gates. <laughs> you notice them. They, they stick out. They're really big right there. But there are other gates, these smaller gates that only a, a person or two at a time can pass through. And sometimes you have to walk through little stairs even to get down. It can be a little uncomfortable, a little claustrophobic. You have to be looking for it to find it. Not everyone sees them. You have to actually look for it. Jesus says, there's only two ways of following me. You want to go through this gate. If you drift along with the crowd, the parade of the crowd, you'll be swept up with the flow. But to live in my kingdom, to follow me, be looking for the narrow gate, for the narrow way where you come in one at a time before me. Then he says, there are two types of leaders to follow. This is verse 15. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize it, which is just a a hilarious image to to think about, is to think about like some sort of fruit tree, like an apple tree, just trying really hard to produce bananas. And it's just something it can't do. You know it, you look at a tree and you know it by its fruit. He says, verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Who is Jesus describing? He says, beware of your leaders, your Christian leaders who don't practice what they preach. And that might not be always obvious at first, but eventually the fruit will come out. You'll see their life. The false prophets that he's describing here are those Christian leaders who appear on the surface as if all is well, all is good. They pretend to proclaim the truth while their lives aren't living the truth. And this gets to the heart of hypocrisy. And so for Christian leaders, for clergy, for nonprofit leaders, missionaries, counselors, you can listen here especially to Jesus' warning for you. It's not enough to have the right answers. You are called to live the good news you talk about, that there has to be integrity in your life. And maybe... 
Maybe you've known preachers before who have been famous preachers or just so eloquent preachers. Maybe you even listen to their podcasts. But then you start to find out a little bit about their life, maybe how they treat their spouse or their family or other details of their lives. And you realize that who they, how they talk and how they live, it just doesn't match up. And the power of their preaching actually grows weaker and weaker. And similarly, you might have heard preachers before who aren't as good preachers. You know, on a Sunday morning, what they're communicating doesn't have quite the power or the, the punch that some of the other preachers do. But then you get the details of their lives the way they treat those closest to them, the integrity that they live, the way they're following the gospel, and what happens? You listen to them more, and you say, that's the gospel that I believe in, the way they're living their life, because in the end, the preacher is the message, not just the sermon. And that goes for every Christian leader. Jesus is saying, by your fruit, Christian leaders, you will be recognized, not just by what you say. Say the right things, of course, but also live the way of Jesus. This is a special word to Christian leaders. And if you're in any form of leadership as a Christian, this is an important word to pay heed to. The great pastoral theologian Gregory the Great in the fifth century, he said, listen to this. No one does more harm in the church than he who has the title or rank of holiness and acts perversely. No one does more harm than the Christian leader called to be holy who acts perversely. Jesus continues piling on these images. He says there are two workers, two workers which now applies hypocrisy to everyone. He expands the danger of hypocrisy. Listen, I will, look at verse 21. If you want to know what I consider to be the scariest verse in the Bible, look at Matthew 7 verse 21. Because who in here will say to Jesus, Lord, I tried to follow you? Every one of us will say to him. But Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so we're wondering, what is the will of the Father who is in heaven? Because I want to be this type of person. These people, as you're reading about them here, Jesus says, these are faith healers. They're actually doing some really powerful things. They're commanding demons. They raise the dead. I don't know, anyone in here, has anyone done that before? Is that, is that on your, your resume of Christian followership? Have you actually raised the dead before? If you talk to someone who had prayed so fervently that someone who had died had stood back up, wouldn't you think, I think that person is holy. I would put them in the category of holy, right? Super Christians. And yet Jesus says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I imagine myself as one of these people saying, God, look, look at my credentials. If you, I mean, I'm a priest. I've been on mission trips. I've led people to Christ. I've done some things, God. I've done some things for you, Jesus. I think you should be proud of me, Right? He says, it is not enough to do impressive works in my name. Do you know me? Do you love me? Is your character my character? Jesus is not concerned with your charisma. He's concerned with your character. You can have all the spiritual power in the world, and if you do not have the character of Christ, if you have not put on Christ, if you're not daily living 
Jesus, he often tells us, the will of my Father, he says this in, in the Gospel of John, it is to believe in the one who he has sent. That's the will of the Father, to believe in this Jesus, to entrust yourself to him on a daily basis. Like the false prophets, all of us are in danger of becoming hypocrites. Spiritual power must be met with spiritual character. This is for all Christians, not just for leaders. And finally, he ends with the statement, there's only two houses. Verse 24, this is the, the last image that Jesus uses. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus says in the end, there are only two houses, only two ways to live. And if you look at this, both of the houses are the same. It seems like the architect has done the exact same work in every respect, same wall, same roof. Everything is the same except the foundation. One person chooses to build on the rock to make a life upon Jesus' teaching. The other person chooses to build on sand, a place without a foundation. Both people experience the storms of life. Rain, winds, floods striking against a house, the life of a person. Here's the reality. We will all face disaster in life. We will all face woundings. We will all make a mess of our own life. In fact, uh, just this week, I was skimming through a book. Do you know how many times adults face major turning events in their adult life? Take a guess. I'd love to hear it. I'm interested, actually. Five times in life. Anything else? Seven? Eight? Okay. For your adult life, you will experience 36 major changes in your life. Things like relocating to a new city, losing a loved one, marrying or uh, getting into a serious relationship, perhaps a relationship ending, finding new work, medical crisis. You will face 36 major events in the course of your adult life. It will happen to every single one of us. And Jesus says, on what have you built your life? When one of these 36 events comes in your life, when the streams are rising up, when the winds are beating against the house, what sustains you? Have you built your life upon me and my teaching? Jesus says that the stress of life will always expose the foundation of what we really believe and of what we really trust in and who we really think is God. At the end of the day, the changes of life, the stresses of life will expose our beliefs. And Jesus says, build your life. There's only two ways, only two roads, only two houses. Build your life upon me. So here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the invitation, will you follow me, the king? And Christ Church, as I've prayed for you this week, part of the work of coming to a sermon is just praying for a congregation. And I've imagined what choices might lie before you right now. Trying to think through what might it feel like to be launching a child into college, perhaps. What might it feel like to be welcoming family home over the holidays? What might it feel like to yourself be experiencing some form of loneliness this season? What, 
what might it feel like to be looking for a job and still not able to get the work that you seek? What might it feel like to be aging and to be distressed about aging? What might it feel like to be losing a loved one this season? I've just been praying for you with that kind of an imagination and encouraging and hoping and praying for you that as you come to whatever choice is in front of you right now, whatever mountain that you're on looking down into a ravine, that you won't listen to the fear, that you won't listen to your pride thinking you have accomplished all you need to accomplish, but you'll hear the voice of Jesus who at the end of his sermon says, trust me, jump, follow me, build your life upon me is the way to live, the invitation, the challenge for you this season and every day. And so though Advent is ending and Advent will end in a few hours, until Jesus comes back, we are always in Advent. We are always waiting for the King. We are always dealing with some form of suffering, some sin, something, waiting for him to return. The invitation, the challenge in this conflicted world where we live of time and choice is to obey him, the jump into the mountain waters, to sink to the bottom, to die, to be raised again, and to journey on to the land of joy. We believe this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand.